I think you're probably the longest standing film showbiz friend that I have, actually. I was thinking... Hello? Yeah, I mean, this whole podcast came about when I turned 30, uh, which was... Oh, oh, no, no, no. You you did not turn 30. <laughs> when did you turn 30? At the end of last year. Shut up. Yeah, almost a year no. ago, actually. Yeah, I see. Look, I'm fanning my face. I can't. I can't take this. <laughs> you were. I met you when you were 15, child. You That's were 15. Right. So you've known me oh. for more than half my life now. Isn't that kooky? Well, that, that's why I'm one of your longer known showbiz friends is because I met you when you were a baby in diapers, practically. Yes. I know. You did have to change my nappy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. It was adorable, though. Yeah. You yeah. can't do anything wrong. Even your poop, even your poop is cute. It's true. <laughs> it's yes, true. if you don't have to smell it. Here we go. Let's do it, friends. Episode 22 of Coming Up Next. And what a privilege it is to bring you this week's chat. As you may have heard, I have known this guy for 15, 16 years now. It was uh, my birthday yesterday, actually. Well, it depends what day you were listening to. Monday of this week. Um, and it depends what week you're listening to. The 7th of December was my birthday. Uh, and... I get to bring you what is an absolute treat for me. You may know this man as Abe Sapien from Hellboy. You may know him as the fawn on The Pale Man from Pan's A Labyrinth. You may know him most recently from Falling Skies and The Flash. He's also well known for his roles in shows such as Buffy the Vampire Slayer, films like Hocus Pocus. The list goes on and on. He is one of the most consistently working actors in Hollywood, and I feel an absolute privilege to be able to call this man a friend. My ramble buddy this week via Skype, Doug Jones. And on that note, I do apologize in advance for the uh, the quality of the sound being a little bit off. Um, but stay tuned because it does uh, fix itself, or rather I fixed it, about uh, five minutes into the interview. And some exciting news, friends. Uh, for those of you in Australia... Put February 14th, 2016 in your calendars. Uh, I was very, very uh, fortunate to be asked to work with an amazing group of people um, spearheaded by Ben Nicholas uh, and Julian Costanzo uh, to make a short film. And we were accepted into the final 16 of Tropfest. So if you're in Sydney, Centennial Park, February 16th, February 14th rather, 2016, if you're anywhere else in the country that is Australia, uh, you can tune in to SBS2. It'll be streamed. The whole night will be streamed. You'll be able to see me. You'll be able to see Ben, Julian, all the films, all the filmmakers. It's just going to be an awesome night. And you can show your support to the Australian film industry. And if you'd like to show your support to coming up next specifically, jump on our Facebook page, give us a thumbs up, let me know what you think of the show, facebook.com slash cunpodcast, C-U-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can tweet me at cunpodcast, and if you feel like being an absolute rock star, jump on the iTunes, look up Coming Up Next, give us a review, share us with your friends. That would be absolutely unbelievable. And now that I've said all those words, here's an hour and a half of me saying some more words with my friend, Doug Jones. 
actually having um, having you as a guest on the podcast was actually sort of inspiring me to go back to that time and, and think about how our friendship did begin um, and where I was at, where you were at um, in, in our lives and how it was kind of this unusual connection of, you know, you were in Melbourne, I guess it was 2000, so you, you were still flying uh, under the radar somewhat. It was, two, it was uh, I'm trying to think, the, the actual year was... Or was two, it 99? No, 2001. Oh, it was 2001, okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, fall. It was fall, of, and, I, and I stayed over until, like, I think I ended up wrapping in end of January of 2002. That's right, you were here for quite a while. And I yeah. was doing work experience. I, had my, I must have had my birthday while you were here, actually. You, uh, I think you did and didn't. You did I go? Well, I went yeah, to see a, a, we went. Did I go to with the, you and your your friends to see a movie or something, and we had dinner first somewhere. Yeah, we went to TGI Fridays for dinner. We went to TGI Fridays. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's and right. And we went and saw a movie that I can't remember what it was called. I can't either now. I don't know how cool we saw. It must have been an awesome film. But it was awesome, I'm sure, of course. It was of your choosing because it was your birthday. That's right. Um, yeah, but it, it, it was definitely a kind of mind-blowing moment when I realized that, that um, how long we've known each other for. And I didn't, even, yeah. I didn't even think about the fact that I haven't seen you really in person for five or six, maybe even more years. Years? Isn't that crazy? I know, I know. Mm. Mm. Um, but going back to what I was originally saying about, you know, I was this kind of young impressionable kid who was really interested in the filmmaking process and aspiring to be an actor and you um, were at this point in your career I guess where you'd been doing it for about 25 uh, 25 15 15 16 years fairly regularly Um, but you were getting a lot of work on referrals you were kind of um, you you weren't known in the way that you are known today because you hadn't had the kind of breaks, although they weren't far away. Um, what was that kind of like for you? Right. Well, uh, uh, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head there. I, I had been working consistently since I began. And um, I think I, I started 19, it was like the fall of 1985, like November of 85 when I, got fired from the bank job that I had in California <laughs> and decided, oh, I guess I should be an actor now. Um, Cause that's what I went to uh, university for. And that was my lifelong dream was to be an actor. So, you know, when the bank fired me, I was like, ah, well, I, the bank job moved me to California from Indiana. Good. So I was geographically in the right spot to do the showbiz now. And, um, uh, so uh, it, did, it didn't take long for, uh, for me to start working pretty consistently. A lot of TV commercials or adverts, as you might call them. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then with that came, you know, the creature effects jobs. Mm. Uh, with mime, when you have mime on your resume and contortionist on your resume as special skills, and you're six three and a half, and you weigh 140 pounds... That's a very tall, skinny fellow, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, the creature effects makeup people tend to like 
they look at you as you are this wonderful blank canvas to paint on. Mm. Uh, you know, that, those dimensions and that skill set is really appealing to um, put prosthetics on. Don't, you don't get too bulky at my size. And with a mind background, there's a performance, a physical performance that can happen there that where you understand movement, silhouettes, positions, body language, expression. Um, and, and the creature effects guys really want their, their creation to come to life. And so an actor like that uh, is appealing to them. So referrals began uh, when I started meeting these creature effects makeup people from doing the TV commercials I was doing. And then movies followed. And so I was never without work. I was uh, Ever since 1985, I've been working consistently. So when you met me in 2001, um, I had been at it for, yeah, like you said, 15, 16 years. And, um, and uh, had been really consistently, I'd been working full time. I, I had bought my, my first, I was on my second house by then, I think. And, uh, wow. And uh, so and that was all from, you know, being an unknown actor who was just, you know, in the trenches doing <laughs> doing uh, uh, one monster after another and doing uh, TV commercials and guest starring here and there on a, on a sitcom, maybe, but uh, but still not being famous for any of the any of the above, you know. Mm. Um, so so between between 2001 and now, um what happened is 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 um, is, when, is is a director called named Guillermo del Toro. Uh, now I met him actually by the time I met when I met you, I had already done my first movie with him. I'd worked three days on Mimic, which was his first American studio big budget film. He had done Chronos before that in Mexico, and uh, so well when he did Mimic, um, it, he actually filmed it up in Canada. And the tall, skinny actor who was Canadian, who did the bug, who wore the bug suit costume uh, for the movie, uh, when they were doing reshoots in L.A., pickup shots, we call them, mm. uh, or uh, the, that Canadian actor couldn't be flown down to L.A. Uh, quickly enough to get a work permit and a visa, whatever you need. So, uh, so the creature shop, Rick, Rick Lazzarini's uh, uh, creature effects went through their Rolodex, okay, what tall, skinny guy do we know that will fit this costume that's local? My name came up, as, and that's what happened at ground creature shops all the time, was my name would come up when they were thinking, oh, gosh, we have a tall, skinny alien. Oh, my gosh, we have a tall, skinny <laughs> kangaroo guy. Oh, we have a t-. whatever. My name would come up uh, often when people were discussing who can, who can wear this, who can perform this. So thankfully... By the way, uh, so so that that phone call that day is what started my relationship with Guillermo del Toro, because um, Rick Rick Lazzarini uh, uh, they they called me um, saying, "Hey, can you do a night shoot tonight? Uh, we, we need somebody quickly uh, to fill fill in for this large insect creature." Mm. I'm like, "Ah, sure. What's the? I had no idea what what the movie was." was about and I didn't know who Guillermo del Toro was at the time either because uh, American audiences weren't familiar with his work yet. Mm. So um so he uh so I ended up working on Mimic for 3 days uh as as this bug guy doing like, pickup shots in front of a green screen, pickup shots uh, uh on top of a building getting pelted with rain. Uh, I didn't really have to do much but but I was around a lot. 
And so my second day of work, uh, Guillermo del Toro sat across the lunch table from me and he put his chin in his hands and he said, so tell me everything you've been in before. <laughs> so I was like, well, OK, now this is 1997. Well, and by that time, I had done Hocus Pocus, uh, the, the now classic Halloween movie that's only grown in popularity over the years. Mm. Um, I had done uh, Tank, Tank Girl with the Stan Winston uh, creations, making me into a kangaroo man. I'd done Warriors of Virtue, which was another kangaroo man mutant movie. Uh, they certainly liked the kangaroo men in, uh, in the 90s. Something, yeah. What actor can say he's played two kangaroo guys? <laughs> Not one, but you know? two. Yeah, right, exactly. It's, it's it's hard enough to find <laughs> to find a guy who's played one. But, uh, there must be there must be an award for that somewhere. Um, anywho, uh, so so I was telling him about you know the, the the crazy body of work I had at the time, and he knew every single makeup artist I, that I mentioned. He oh, who did the makeup? up on that oh tony gardner is this guy oh good oh yeah yeah so he was just like this he was like a, a 12 year old fanboy tucked into a roly-poly director's body you know mm. and that so that's what i loved about him immediately was that he was a fanboy who who knew how to have a geek gasm and knew how to make movies that would give others geek gasms because he knows what those feel like you know what i mean mm. so uh so that now that's 1997 so after my three days on that, I went off to do other things for another five years, and we lost contact for about five years. I did, did my episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the meantime. Uh, I did uh, a, a small part in The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle with um, with uh, uh, Jason Alexander. Robert De Niro, Jason Alexander, Rene Russo. Yeah, um, did a little bit in um, Monkey Bone with uh, Brendan Fraser. Mm. I was a yeti in that. Um, so this is all like the late, the late nineties, um, yeah, 1998, 99. Then in 2001, I did the time machine with Guy Pierce. I was, uh, I was, um, Guy Pierce. He's Australian, you know, he is. Aust- I, I did. Know yeah. that. He actually, yeah. um, he, uh, hosted a documentary I made last year that was on, um, television here. So I was well, very fortunate to work with him. Oh, right. And isn't he a sweetheart of a guy? I he really liked him a lot. really amazing yeah. and humble and very generous yeah, right. person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Oh, I'm glad. Oh, oh, yay. I love this whole story. Yay. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. So, uh, so I, I was, the, I was the, the lead spy Morlock in the time machine with him in 2001. We filmed that. And then that was, that was the last movie I did before I met you. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, then that was well, I met you uh, doing a movie called Darkness Falls. Mm. It was re- originally called The Tooth Fairy, and I played the Tooth Fairy character. But in Darkness Falls, you'll see a CG version of a creature that looks nothing like me, mm. uh, or, or nothing like the makeup I was in, uh, designed by Steve Wang. So it was a redesign thing, and a, you know, as movies will often do, the, the test audience didn't buy it or something, and so uh, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I thought I thought it was a beautiful, eerie creature. I was the, the tooth fairy was, but mm. anywho. So, uh, but then uh, then I got I got home in two thousand two from meeting you in Australia and working on on uh, on Darkness Falls, and it was later in two thousand two, and I got another crazy phone call out of the blue from Steve Wang, the, the makeup designer that you might have met him when you came on to the set for um, Darkness Falls. He right. was. 
he was he was the, my lead makeup uh, person that, that dressed me and got me into my tooth fairy costume. Mm. Um, he also he designed it and he also made it and then he was on set working it and also puppeteering the big wings I had and all that. Um, so I got a call from him in the fall of 2002, and he said, "Hey Doug, I'm here with a director friend of yours." Uh, and we're just we're out to having dinner celebrating uh, this movie we're going to do together. And uh, he just approved the maquette today for this design of this creature. We thought you might be good to play. Well, what had happened earlier that day? It was uh, it was Spectral Motion was the name of the shop, and Steve had designed this character for them for a movie. And that was the day that the director was going to come in and see this design, this sculpture. It's a, a scaled down sculpture of in three dimensions. So you can see what that design will look like, and mm. and the director can approve the the silhouette and the look of this creature. So they unveiled this for him, and it was the Abe Sapien Blue Fish Guy character from the first Hellboy movie. Oh, wow! And when he saw this, he fell to his knees and said, "Oh, you are so beautiful, and I am so fat." That's what he said. Yeah, I think that was his way. I think that was his way of saying what a beautiful, lithe, thin creature this is. Yeah. Uh, so when he said that, uh, the creature effects guy Steve Wang and, and Mike Elizalde, who owned the shop, and the sculptor of this, Jose Fernandez, they had all worked with me before, all knew of me, and they all said at the same time, "Well, you know who's perfect to play this is Doug Jones," and the director was Guillermo del Toro, of course. And uh, so when they said Doug Jones, he said. Doug Jones, wait, I know Doug Jones. And he pulled my car out of his wallet that I gave him five years earlier on the set of Mimic. Mm. So, uh, so that was what really, so that then I became Abe Sapien in the first Hellboy movie. And that, that's what really then cinched our relationship as director and actor. Mm. And Hellboy, Hellboy was the first movie where I got, I became a blip for a minute on the celebrity radar for just a minute. You know, people the internet was up and running by then. So people are, can look you up online and go like, Oh, what's uh, where have I seen this guy before? And then they can, IMDB was, was fairly new then, but it was still, uh, but people could look you up and go, Oh, he's also been in blah, blah, and blah. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. So then they can, they can kind of tie things together finally. So that happened on the first Hellboy movie. And then I went into obscurity for another couple of years. Um, that came out in 04 but then, uh, in the meantime, I did I did another movie called Benchwarmers. The Benchwarmers with uh, it was a funny, silly comedy with, uh, was with Johnny Knoxville, wasn't it? Uh, not Knoxville. It was uh, uh, Rob Schneider. Ah, uh, yeah, that was with Rob Schneider. David and David Spade and John Heater, who played Napoleon Dynamite. Mm, that's right. Um, and the three of them were they were three adults who uh, were reliving their childhood by creating a uh, a silly uh, little league. That, that, so they were three adults playing on a team against a bunch of kids. Uh, it was ridiculous premise, but <laughs> but it was funny. It was funny. And the guy who financed this little league just for these guys was an eccentric billionaire uh, uh, played by John Lovitz. And John Lovitz and this character was this like crazy guy who had, was a big film nerd. He had like Star Wars things in his mansion, and his his butler was a robot named Number Seven. And I played robot number seven. So, so, uh, uh, so I was his butler with a a very bad British accent. Lunch is on the way, Mr. Carmichael. And so I, uh, 
had a great time working on that. And uh, the same day that I booked the Benchwarmers, I got a, an email from Guillermo del Toro. And he said, dog, I'm in Spain uh, prepping a new... He types in that voice. Right. <laughs> and he said, and he said I'm, I'm, you know, I'm prepping a new movie and I want you to play the title character. And it was Pan's Labyrinth, right? Now that, this is the movie that did change my life. It turned a page for me. And I went from, from that, that actor that nobody knew how to, how to identify or how to categorize, Right. I was called a stuntman sometimes. I was called a mime quite a bit. I was called a contortionist. But it's like when the, when the press or journalists wanted to report about me, they didn't want to call me an actor yet because they didn't understand what I did. You know what I mean? When you're wearing a lot of crazy makeups all the time, um, it's like they don't, they, don't, uh, they don't understand that it takes an actor to perform through that. Yeah. So, they, so they wanted to call me something else. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth was the movie where they, they did give me the credit of being an actor. They would even call me a movie star and they were making comparisons with, uh, Lon Chaney and Boris Karloff and doing a throwback to the old school days of monster films where the, where the monster was a, was a leading character and where the monster was, had, had human issues to deal with. Mm. Uh, And I will credit Guillermo del Toro for creating films where a monster can play like the old school days. Right, mm. and Pan's, Pan's Labyrinth was absolutely that film. Uh, it, it, it ended up, you know, when I read the script for this, I wiped the tears away and and was like, oh, of course I have to be in this film, mm. right? It was just a beautiful script. It is a beautiful and I knew, film. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I it was, and uh, he, knowing that Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro wrote the script and would be directing it himself. And after reading the script, I was like, oh, this is going to be so gorgeous. Now, I had no idea it was going to play. I didn't have no idea it was going to, you know, go as big and wide as it did worldwide. It's a Spanish language film. Mm. And now now I, I don't know what, if, what Australian audiences are like, but American audience, uh, you have you have some hard times getting them to watch a foreign language film with subtitles. Mm. Right. Uh, where this is a, in Europe, it's a done thing. People watch movies with subtitles all the time. It's a part of the deal, right? Mm. But in America, it's like, oh, I don't want to have to read it. What? Yeah, you'll get that response from. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I, yeah, my, I, I'm. This is this is one one place where I, I I'm embarrassed for my own countrymen. But uh, I hate uh, but, but but Pan's Labyrinth was was the largest grossing Spanish language film in the U.S. of all time. Um, because of its artistic wonder that it was. Uh, and it ended up getting six Oscar nominations. Um, so it, it became an artistic piece that people really then really were digging to find out who's this, who's that. I was the only American actor in the film. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I spoke English as a first language, which is something else the cast didn't do. So when it came time to do... When the, when the movie opened in the United States, and uh, it was then time for press and promotion... I was the one actor they could talk to. So, uh, so I, as the monsters in the movie, I was the the fawn in the movie and the pale man, the guy with his uh, the eyeballs in, in his hands. Mm. Um, the eater of children. I was, right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I ate children. Um, that was that was a fascinating. That journalists found found me fascinating all of a sudden, and they wanted to, and and the the uh, lead entertainment writer for the um, Los Angeles Times, huge newspaper did a cover story on me in the calendar section uh, with, a, with a picture of me all twisted up on the, on the cover of this 
section saying he's the Lon Chaney of today, Doug Jones. Wow. It was just like, it was just one of the most beautiful tributes ever. And it was, and like I said, this was a page turning uh, movie for me because of this reaction I was getting. Mm. And I will, I attribute all this to Guillermo del Toro for, for writing and creating a piece that, that I could play in like this. Mm. Um, how did you, so, how did you, uh, how did you feel about this when, with, with this happening kind of 20 years in to right, quite an right. extraordinary, I mean, I'm looking at your IMDb profile and I'm going, if this was, and say in inverted commas, a regular actor, um, mm-hmm. you know, you would be, you would have already had that moment probably 10 years earlier, but because of the niche that you were working in, and because of the right. nature of the work that you were doing, you're kind of hidden from the public spotlight, quite literally, by the, by the yeah. prosthetics and and the work that you're doing. And so to to finally have this experience twenty years in, how, how was how did that feel for you? Uh, it, it, it was a surprise to me because I was 46 years old when the movie was released in theaters, uh, and at 46. I've been I'd been working consistently for 20 years by then, right? Um, and uh, tw- almost, yeah, yeah, 20 or 19 years at least. Um, and uh, yeah, I've been making a full time living at it, and I and I and I was actually pleasant. Uh, I, I I looked ahead at my future and thought, if this is how it ends, this would be fine. Uh, I will have done what I loved, and uh, and. I'll retire happy one day or die happy one day, whatever comes first, <laughs> uh, knowing that I, that I had, you know, that I had worked as an, as, as an actor and it was, you know, living my passion and that's great. Um, so at 46, I did not expect fame to come all of a sudden. It's like, usually that happens in your earlier years. Like you said, you know, in your twenties is when you come bursting out and get famous and then, then you tend to fade with time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems to be the, the, the more normal track. So to be an obscure actor for my first 20 years and then at 46 years old come busting out as, oh, oh, who is this guy? And so I was an overnight sensation after 19 years of working (laughs) my ass off. Right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it it was fascinating. You know, I was invited to go to the Oscars that year because New Line Cinema didn't, again, I was the American actor with English as a first language. So they wanted me working the red carpet and doing all the press. Mm. Uh, So when, when I found myself at the Academy Awards, being interviewed by Joan Rivers and the like, uh, um, I knew that life had changed for me. And, mm. uh, and, and it was, it was a, a very exciting time. But I will tell you this, little Al, um, when, when you get fame given to you or, or, it, or if you do something of note at an earlier age, it can mess with your psyche a little bit. It can. Mm. Um, and you've, you've seen a lot of young actors that grow older and become... Uh, thieves, drug addicts, suicides. You know, there's a lot that can happen with your psyche when, when you have a lot of fame, a lot of accolades, and a lot of people bowing to you, and a lot of yes men around you going, "Oh, everything you do is fantastic. You're amazing." Mm. Then your your TV show goes off the air, your movie ages, you age, and that that following might might leave you. Right? Mm. The Hollywood is a very fickle place, and uh, and fame is a very fickle. A girlfriend who will leave you for the next good-looking guy, right? Mm. So, so when so you can go through a, a deep depression when when that kind of like uh, uh, adoration goes away or fades, um, if you put your entire self-worth into it, mm. right? 
that's the mistake you can make is, is that you think, well, this is who I am and it's always going to be there and I'm all that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> when you, when you believe that, uh, that's, that's treacherous water to, to be treading because, um, when it goes away, you can, you can suffer a very deep depression and you can, and then whatever comes with that. So I will, I'm thankful that, that the, any notoriety that I got came later for me because I already knew by then this could last for three minutes. Mm. It could last or it could last for the rest of my life. I don't know. And it does not define me. It hasn't defined, fame has not defined me up to this point. So I will not let it define me now either. Mm. So, so I decided that, um, I will enjoy the ride. Absolutely. And I will milk it for all it's worth, uh, you know, and, um, and say yes to every, every opportunity I get to appear somewhere, to wave at fans, to, to, uh, speak at, at a university, to speak at an acting school, to show up at fan conventions, which I love doing the fan convention circuit. Uh, still to this day, I love it. Um, so uh, I thought, I'm, you know, as long as the invitations are there, I'll say yes to everything and, uh, and ride that wave on the surfboard called fame as long as, as, the, as the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See what I did there? Ah, yeah. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, so I, I, I very much, uh, have enjoyed that. And, it, um, so it, life goes on. So from there, from Pan's Labyrinth, uh, right after that, this, this, the summer of 2007, um, uh, Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer was released in theaters, and I played the title character of the Silver Surfer, which, again, was a big, big press brouhaha, and it gave me a lot of attention. Then after that, in 2008, Hellboy 2 The Golden Army was released in theaters worldwide. And my role of Abe Saping the Blue Fish Guy was now beefed up a bit. I was in much more of the film. And, uh, and my, my, my ranking in the, in the opening credits of the film, or the main titles of the film, had risen as well. I was, I was thir- built third. And uh, so uh, life had changed for me again. You know, again, this was, this was con- a continuing thing. And so, um, so I've enjoyed very, uh, uh, all kinds of, you know, everyone says, what was your big break? You know, that's a, a question an actor will get an awful lot. And I've had, I've had dozens of big breaks, you know, because <laughs> you never know when your last, uh, when your last one will be, you know. Mm. I'm always grateful when I get the next opportunity. Um, I just finished three years on a TV show called Falling Skies, which was a, a, a different break of a different kind. I'd never been a series regular on a TV series before. So... Um, in season three of Falling Skies, they added this new character named Cochise. I was the leader of the Volm race of aliens. Right, for those of, uh, listeners who don't know, uh, Falling Skies is kind of like a wa- The Walking Dead with aliens. So it was a post-apocalyptic show where aliens had taken over Earth. And I was a race of alien who came in season three to help the, al- the humans fight back the bad aliens who had taken over Earth. Mm. So... Um, so that it was a, a great opportunity for me to explore a character and I'd never played a character for three years. I mean, that was the longest running gig I'd ever had and to explore a character and get to know him as the writers evolve your character over this much time, uh, was, it was a great, a great fun experience for me. And I got to know Cochise very well. And, and so he's, he's endeared himself to, into my heart now. Uh, mm-hmm. so the series en- ended this past summer. We, um, had our final season air season five. And, uh, so that was, it was a bittersweet thing to, you know, it's, it's, I'm happy to be free to move on to other things now, but I also, uh, have very much enjoyed the ride that that became. I really Mm -hmm. did. 
uh, being on a successful show is a, is a, is a sweet gig. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. But in the meantime, now it's like uh, I've guest starred on other TV shows. Uh, uh, I, it was a great year for television last year for me. I, I, I'm also a recurring guest on The Strain on the FX channel. Guillermo uh, del Toro's TV series. Guillermo TV series, right, based on the books that he wrote with uh, Chuck Hogan. Um, so it's a vampire story. And um, sorry for my phone going off in the background here. Well, that's okay. It's uh, a nice little soundtrack. It, is, it sounds like a unicorn danced th- through the room, doesn't it? <laughs> I can actually oh, I can see the unicorn in the background. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Huh? Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, on the strain, I'm a, I'm a recurring ancient vampire. Uh, and, so I, and that's all because Guillermo del Toro came looking for me again. Um, and uh, so I, I very much enjoyed showing up, popping up on, in that series in the first two seasons here, here, and there. Mm. Uh, season three, season three is about to start filming, and I've already been asked back to reprise my role again uh, in another, at least one episode so far. So we'll see where that pan, how that pans out. Um, I also uh, it dipped back into the superhero world again, uh, doing an episode of Arrow. And also then uh, as as super DC supervillain Deathbolt, which actually is a comic book uh, uh, throwback. Mm. Uh, he, was, he was a lesser known supervillain, but uh, but he was indeed around in like I think the eighties or maybe the nineties in the DC comics. Uh, so uh, so Arrow introduced me as you know supervillain Deathbolt, and then I crossed over to do an episode of The Flash as the same character. With that was, this Liam. was all last season with your friend Liam McIntyre. Uh, he. he Delightful, delightful. And he's also a supervillain on the show. Mm. Yeah. He, he literally just uh, 10 minutes ago sent me a message on Skype. I don't know if you heard the little bloop in your in your. Oh, I did, yeah. Not. Yeah, that was Liam messaging me. And so he asked if what I was doing and I said I was on Skype with you. And this Aww. is literally the first time he's messaged me on Skype in a couple of years. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and and he, he said to, uh, to smush your face. Uh, hug his face for me holy shit of all the times what the hell kismet is that <laughs> <laughs> oh so true oh he's just delightful we, we hit it off and of course the, the minute he uh, uh we met each other for the first time he said uh i think we have a mutual friend uh you might know alistair marks i'm like oh alistair my ass he's a little loud to me yeah <laughs> right Oh, yeah, precious. he. I think I think he sent me a message say, or an email, uh, literally just after, and it was all capitals saying, "I just met Doug Jones on the set of Flash," and <laughs> I am pretty sure that I just pooed everywhere wherever I was. <laughs> it's a Pavlovian uh, thing that I have with you now, sure, because I'm used to the right. nappy changing. The nappy. <laughs> <laughs> you hear my name, you poop. I, I get it. I totally get it. I uh, know oh, that was that was uh, tremendously exciting for me, um, just to know that you guys had connected. No, no, isn't it great? Isn't it great when yeah, when you when you when you have friends that you you, you adore each of them for different reasons, and they're meeting each other, and they end up adoring each other. Mm. Uh, that's a you feel like it's a successful day in the world of social uh, <laughs> love and, and friendship. It is. It really is. Yeah. yeah. Also, you 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 and Liam, I think, have a lot of. Um, there's a lot in common between the two of you, just in terms of your beliefs and attitudes uh, about the world and life. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I felt that very much immediately. Uh, we connected, and, and he's got a, a, a wicked sense of humor as well. Mm. Oh, he's hilarious. Yes, mm. he's yes. he's the king of the nerds. I think. 
And, and, he's, and he's a nerdy boy, yes. He understands the world of fandom and, and uh, geekdom. Mm. Yeah, we also had another mutual friend, too, uh, Will Kemp. Um, Will Kemp, uh, well, the two of them were working on a TV pilot in Vancouver at the same time, I believe. Right. Liam was going, Liam went back and forth between the pilot and, and uh, The Flash when I was working with him. And uh, Will Kemp and I did a movie together called The Midnight Man, which has not come out yet. It's a, uh, an indie film, but it just got distribution. And uh, it's also with William Forsyth and, um, oh, oh golly, I'm going to get all these actor names forgotten. Uh, uh, Steve Valentine and, and wait, wait, there's more. Uh, oh, uh, uh, Vinnie Jones. So uh, Will and I had worked together recently on The Midnight Man, and so we're making all these connections with Liam knowing you, knowing him. Ah, the world's full of love, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's uh, to kind of take a very short sidestep. Um, One of the things that I I love discussing with people on this podcast is about love and their ideas of um, religion and the meaning of life and faith and this kind of thing this and this kind of idea that I was actually reading a, um, a Rumi quote this morning um, that uh, that said your task is not to seek for love but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it and I think um, I think one of the things that you um, in particular have taught me when I was a bit younger and, and impressionable and that served me growing up is is this idea of, of loving everything and loving everyone. And it's not even loving, it's it's kind of being love in a way. Mm. Um, oh, well, gosh. Well, thank you. That's a very humbling thing to have to live up to now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Precious. Um, well, I... I uh, Yes, I, I find that you, you do attract more bees with uh, honey than vinegar. So um, so I, I believe in pouring on the honey. I do. I just do. <laughs> mm. I, I, I grew up in a household that um, where uh, love was expressed and shared and, uh, and security was given. Uh, you know, I, I had a, a very, very functional family uh, life. As a kid, I mean, every family has its, has its measure of dysfunction, of course. But, but, um, but, uh, but it was not it was not a really huggy, touchy household. And I have become anyone who knows me now or who's seen pictures of me or video of me in public, I grope and maul and <laughs> face cup and pet and hug on everybody I meet. Mm-hmm. Um, this was not how I was raised. I, I came in a, in a much more conservative household where. Um, your needs were met, and and I love yous were spoken, but it was, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it was not so not such a physical. Uh, uh, I got my hugs when I needed them, yes, but but it was more of a. Uh, when we got the first family dog, that's when I realized, oh my gosh, there's a, a, a there's an animal, there's a living, breathing thing that wants my hands on it all the time, mm. and and I and it was like, and I took to that like, oh, this is fantastic. Well, late, <laughs> Later in later in later years, I discovered a book called "The Five Love Languages," and mm. this is a fan, fascinating concept. I don't know if you've heard of this or not. Yeah, I know another one. Yes, um, where it, it explores that people hear and speak love in different languages, 
and that's not like Russian, French, and English. Uh, it's it's in <laughs> or archaic uh, Spanish. Right, right, or archaic Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the languages of um, of physical touch is one. Another one is words of affirmation, where you speak "I love you" and you hear it. Um, uh, uh, quality time doesn't matter what we're doing as long as we're together in the same room. Mm. Um, Acts of service. I love you so much. I want to do the laundry. I want to cook for you. I want to mow the lawn for you. I want to wash your car. Um, or And uh, the giving and receiving of gifts, right? Uh, people often express love through the, the gifts that they give and receive. Uh, so so these five love languages, uh, now this made perfect sense to me. It's like, so anytime that I, and, and we, all ha- we all should speak all of them and be able to hear all of them, but most of us have a stronger language, right? Mm. That uh, maybe our, So my top two, number one, is physical touch and words of affirmation. That's why I'm very expressive with with the petting and the hugging and the, and the face cupping and the boogie boogie, you come here. <laughs> and then I will constantly tell people, you're so adorable. I love you so much. Oh, my gosh, I just want to pinch your face. Look at you. Aren't you just a little prince? Uh, whatever. <laughs> uh, all right. So, and you, you've experienced this, of course. Yes. Uh, so, uh, so, uh, those are my strongest two love languages, and um, so, but it, I learned a lot uh, by by hearing that there were other love languages as well that people are. So if they're not responding to you in the same way, if someone says to you, "Oh, I'm not really a hugger, thanks anyway," can I? Uh, yeah, they shake your hand and they walk away. It's like, oh, I could feel rejected if I wanted to, mm-hmm. but now I realize, oh, wait a second, their love language might be something completely different. And and if I would take the time to hear them, I would I would I would feel very very much loved in that moment instead of rejected, mm. right? So um, so that's a, a a concept that I was just uh, so excited to hear and, and learn about. You know, um, I I grew up uh, in a in a very Christian household. Uh, my my parents were both very uh, you might you might use the word religious, but that religion almost has a, a negative connotation anymore the way it's talked about in the public now, but. To me, uh, uh, our religion, my Christianity, was uh, is it, it, it very much defines who I am. Mm. Um, and you were the youngest uh, of four brothers. Youngest, youngest of four. Bro- uh, yeah, I have three older brothers, so I'm the young, youngest of four. And um, and uh, all of us have have stuck with our Christian beliefs and values and and all. And again, Christianity also in the modern world gets poo pooed a lot and gets. Uh, 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 ridiculed a lot uh, mm. because there might be some there might be some Christian groups and voices out there that are that come off as very judgmental that come off as uh, as very um, you know uh, 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 I don't know um, like better than you know uh, if you don't believe this way uh, you, you're scuzz bag and you're going to hell mm. like uh, holy that, that's, than that's, now kind of attitude holy than Right. Uh, yeah. So the word Christianity seems to be associated with that attitude a lot, which is uh, which is a, a tragedy for to me, mm. because uh, uh, being a Christian to me means living like Christ did, being Christ-like. And if you look at the at the at the example that Jesus Christ set up for us, uh, and it's very well documented in the in the Bible. Um, he was he was what you said a minute ago. He was this walking embodiment of love. Mm. Uh, he didn't. He never met a stranger. 
He uh, he actually was God incarnate. He he was God, the God the Father who took on human form to live among us, to to experience what it was like to be a human, to show us how to be a a perfect human, uh, something none of us can live up to, but we try. Mm. And and to take on our sin for us, he made a very sacrificial. That, that's what that, you've seen this in, portrayed in movies many times. Uh, the, the whole the whole story where he took uh, he went onto the cross and took a sacrifice for all of humanity uh, that pays for our sins. So whatever whatever self flogging we want to do for our shortcomings and, and our misdeeds in this world or sins, if you want to call them that. Um, uh, we don't have to flog ourselves for that anymore because Jesus took that up upon himself and said, I'm taking on the punishment for all of your sins. You are forgiven. Uh, if just, just come to me and, uh, and we'll have that conversation and everything's going to be okay. Mm. That's, that's the root of Christianity for me is that, uh, is that I, uh, I, I have someone bigger, stronger, wiser than myself to rely on to go to for answers and to go to for forgiveness when I have done something incredibly wrong, which every, you know, I might sin as soon as we get off this Skype call, to be honest with you. I, I have no, you know, sin's a part of a, a human's everyday life. Yeah. We're flawed. We're flawed beings, right? We're not perfect. Mm. Uh, I, re, I reserve perfection for God. So, so, when, so when Christianity comes off as um, we're perfect, and you should be too. Uh, mm. That is absolutely, absolutely the wrong message. You know, we, we are flawed human beings trying to live up to the example that Jesus set up for us. We'll, we'll all fall short of it, but, that is, but that's the goal. We're trying to be as much like him as we possibly can be. Mm. So uh, if he was the walking embodiment of love, then I too want to be that. I want uh, everyone that I meet to have left my company feeling special and feeling uh, uh, loved on, you know. Mm. Well, I can tell you from my uh, personal first-hand experience of having introduced you to my brother and some of my friends, that is most certainly the impression that you leave people oh. feeling. Um, yeah, I've not encountered one person that's met you who hasn't left feeling in some way special and in some way love. And even, you know, I think you met some of my friends maybe 10 years ago who still recall those moments <laughs> whenever, whenever oh, you're brought up in conversation. Oh, that is incredible. Really, that's incredibly sweet to hear. Thank mm. you. Aw. Um, so, well, well, when you talk to anybody that I've met before, give them, give them hearts of boogie boogie boo from, from Dougie, okay? I will give them hearts of boogie boogie. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a quote. That's a yeah. quote. Um, yeah. So you, I guess my understanding is that you kind of take religion for you is kind of like this framework on how to, on how to live. Um, what do you, what, what, what is your idea then? Or you, you mentioned God a few times in there as being the kind of embodiment of love and the, the kind of the perfect being. Um, do you, is your idea of that kind of the, the old man in the sky or is it, um, is it kind of an energetic thing or what's your idea around that? Hmm. Um, when I when I was a child learning about God, it was it was the old man in the sky. Yes, because <laughs> it's like, oh, he's, yeah. oh, we have you know, you, when you pray, you fold your hands and you bow in reverence to the old man in the sky, kind of a thing. Mm. Uh, as I've aged and taken on my own decisions and choices in life, uh, uh, he, uh, God is not a concept of a being out there somewhere. He's uh, he lives in my heart. Mm. Uh, I invited him there and I, and, uh, 
and uh, uh, received him as my savior. He's the one who saves me every day from, mm-hmm. from myself and <laughs> from my own sins. And uh, so it is, a, it, is a, it is not an old man in the sky anymore. It's a relationship. It's an ongoing thing. He walks with me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and without that, I, you know, I don't know if I'd be alive today, to be honest. I, you know, um, I don't know if I, if I, uh, my, my own human flaws, uh, and my own, uh, weak choice making, uh, might've gotten me into, into trouble many a time over my lifetime. But, uh, but I, I've had, I've had his wisdom and his, his saving grace to fall back on every single time. Mm. Yeah. That's an ongoing relationship. Yeah. Mm. No, no, I, I understand and feel that's really uh, a beautiful way of putting it. Um, a recurring thing through this podcast has been this idea of um, God as this love, loving energy in, in some fashion. Um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, everyone will have their own kind of versions of that. And I really like the idea that you invite that in mm-hmm. to your own kind of heart and your own being. Um, and that it's an ongoing relationship like any other relationship that you're, you know, constantly right. working on and evolving. Well, you remember love, love is a choice. Um, mm. it, can't be, it can't be forced upon you. So when someone is kidnapped and kept in the basement because someone has an obsession with someone else, right? Um, you know, I, uh, I, I, uh, you have, if you have someone captive in your basement in chains because you love them so much and you're going to prove to them how much you love them, um, uh, what you get back from that person in captivity will not be love. It will be fear. It will mm-hmm. be uh, they'll say whatever they have to to survive. Uh, uh, but when you allow someone to come to you and meet you in the middle, uh, and choose to love you, that's when you know it's real. Right. Mm. So I think, so I do believe God created us human beings with the power of choice, right? Because if he created us just as robotic beings that, that would love him back immediately and without question, then it wouldn't really be love. It would be, well, he created little wind up toys, right? Mm. Um, but he created beings with with choice making power, and so when we do look at him and choose and and see the message he's bringing and and the the love that he's bringing and the salvation that he's bringing, and say yes to it, and say uh, yes, I do love you, Lord. Uh, uh, that's the same thing as as when I met Mrs. Laurie. Uh, you know, we've been married for thirty one years, and uh, when we met and fell in love, it was the same thing. It was. Um, no one had to, no one tied anyone else down to force that upon the other one. It was, it was a, it was a choice we both made, uh, with our hearts that was like, Oh, this is right. You're right for me. And, 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 Mm -hmm. um, and I choose to be with you. I choose to stay with you. I choose to vow the rest of my life with you, uh, uh, freely of my own will. Right. So I, a relationship with God that's forced or, you know, would, wouldn't be any, it would not be genuine, uh, mm. right? Any more than a, than than a, than a shotgun wedding would be, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It would yeah. be kind of antithetical to the whole concept. It absolutely would be, right? Mm. Right. Yeah. There's uh, one thing that I've been really delving into this year is the this idea that there's kind of there's two natural states of being. It's uh, being in, a, in in loving states or fear states, and the mm-hmm. kind of all of your decision making this and it's this sounds pretty black and white but it's not mm-hmm. um all of your decision making is made from one of those two places in your heart yes. effectively yeah 
Uh, I have indeed. I've, I've, I've indeed heard this concept before. In fact, I, uh, Jim Carrey spoke about that. I saw a video of him giving a commencement speech at some university, and uh, and he he spoke of this very thing that that every choice you make in life will be made out of either love or fear. Mm. And uh, so he said, choose choose love. Uh, fear is the enemy, and fear is, and uh, you know, and that does seem to be oversimplified. But 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 if you think about it. You know, uh, everything we do in our day, uh, uh, our fear-based choices are, oh, gosh, I hope I, I better do this or I'll get fired. Mm. I better do this or uh, someone's going to hate my guts. Uh, I better do this or I'll never get asked to do a, a their party ever again. Uh, whatever. Those are fearful decisions. Whereas love decisions are, oh, gosh, I can't wait to see so-and-so. That's why I'm choosing to have lunch with them today. Or mm. You know, oh golly, I can't wait to go to work because I really love this project I'm working on, and um, and I really want to create something beautiful. Mm. Um, you know, th- those are love choices. You know, mm. and so I, I would hope that every uh, when when you when you're looking at a decision you don't, and you don't know whether to say yes or no to something, think think about the love or fear choice in it, and like which one am I being motivated by most, right? Mm. And then uh, if you, we choose love in that situation you'll find yourself making a more pure decision, I think. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, are you in service of your heart or are you in service of your ego? Oh, there you go. That's gorgeous. That's gorgeous. I want, I want that. I'm going to tweet that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. That would be awesome to be tweeted by Doug Jones. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned before about Miss um, Laurie. Yes. Um, how is she? Oh, she's great. Uh, you know, right, right now I'm on location uh, uh, filming in Cleveland, Ohio, right? Mm. So we, this is something we've been doing for years and years. Um, you know, when I became an actor, uh, she's been very supportive of this. Uh, when you marry a creative type person, you really do have to be good at sharing. Uh, if, when you're, uh, and Mrs. Lori has been very good about sharing me with the public. Um, when she met me in college at, at our university, I was uh, I was our college mascot. So she got an early taste of of, <laughs> of me having to run. I mean, I would I followed the team around. Uh, I traveled with the, the cheerleaders and the and the basketball team uh, for all the, the away games, and um, I also had performances in the I was the leader of the mime troupe on campus called Mime Over Matter. So we all had <laughs> right right. I know. Funny, funny, yes. Uh, Pun intentional. So, yes. So we had. Uh, so I was. I was often like occupied uh, some kind of performance or some kind of uh, commitment, you know. And uh, but she learned early on that that uh, she is my priority in this world. Uh, but that also, uh, but who I'm, but what I'm, what I'm gifted. Wherever my gifts lie, or whatever I'm meant to be here for on this planet, um, also requires an awful lot of time and energy that goes outside the house. Uh, so she's been very good about supporting that that purpose in my in life, and mm. and so that's become her purpose too. Um, we, we we're both working together on this thing called uh, you know the, this this machine called Doug Jones. <laughs> now, my, mind you, I I, I kind of separate sometimes Doug Jones the public figure. Uh, isn't always Dougie. Uh, Dougie is someone that I that I can forget about at times, and, and it's tragic when I do, when I get caught up in Doug Jones land mm. and promoting Doug Jones and and propelling Doug Jones forward. Um, 
I, I can forget about Dougie. And uh, where Dougie lives is he has other, other definitions. He's not just an actor. He's also uh, a, a son, a brother, a, a, a husband, um, an uncle, um, and, uh, and a friend. You know, so I, I have many more hats to wear in a day. And so uh, Dougie does. Doug Jones doesn't wear all those hats, but <laughs> but but Dougie does. Mm. And so I, I must remember when I'm getting uh, when I'm getting stressed out and, and my calendar is full of Doug Jones crap. Uh, to Remember, I must, must, must wedge in Dougie time. If I don't, then I'm going to go crazy and I'm going to and I'm going to lose a piece of myself. I've done it before. So I, I, I it's something I'm very, very leery of now. You know, I, I need to make sure that there's Dougie time. Mm. And Mrs. Lily plays a big part of the Dougie time thing and reminding me of that. Her, uh, her not being in the showbiz is wonderful uh, mm. because uh, she and she's not enamored with it. She uh, she shows up at public events with me that, that I that I'll want her to when I when I request her present. Please come to this with me. I would love your support at this event. Mm. If it's a premiere of a movie I'm in, especially or something like that. Um, but but it, when it comes to like, you know, uh going to a charity event because I was invited or going to a thing because they want me to show up or whatever. Uh, uh, she'll often pass on that because the red carpet experience is not, it doesn't do anything for her. She hates it. She hates the, the whole posy posy part of Hollywood. Mm. It's a, it's a part of the, it's a part of the game. And I understand that. Uh, but, and she understands it too. She doesn't poo poo it. She just would rather not be a part of it that night. Mm. <laughs> you know? So, uh, so we, we, we've gotten to a, a really good rhythm between us. Um, on how this works. And, and because, uh, in the early days of, of Hollywood land, um, uh, I, we moved to Los Angeles so that I could be an actor and, 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 and most of the work was happening in Los Angeles. Well, what's happened in the 30 years I've been an actor now is that, that the work goes everywhere around the world now. Uh, uh basically studios and producers and TV networks and everybody chase the cheap, right? Mm-hmm. They chase the cheap. And if the cheap lives in, yes, where are the tax breaks? Uh, that's why I was filming in Australia, by the way, when I met you, was mm. that uh, Australia was offering, you know, a wonderful uh, dollar exchange from the U.S. dollar, uh, wonderful tax incentives, and all kinds for the production. So uh, it's afforded me a lot of travel. I've seen more of the world than I ever would have otherwise, but, but it also takes me away from home quite a bit. Um, so what will uh, so we, we've we've this started this started happening in 1995, and uh, so Mrs. Lori and I have, have we're old pros. This is 20, 20 years of my thirty year career has been me on the road, right? Mm. So uh, something that, that that comes in handy is when you marry the right person who understands that at the end of the day you will come home, and they trust that. Mm. Trust is a huge part of a relationship that's going to last, right? Mm. You must trust that the other person wants to come home and will come home, right? Uh, and, and that, that goes for their, not only their physical being, but their heart, right? Because uh, pe- some people can be at home and their heart is elsewhere, right? Mm. Uh, but, if, but if you trust that all of that person wants to be at home with you, their heart stays at home with you even when they're on the road, and their physical body will come back to join the heart, uh, uh, then it's all good. It's all good. So, we, so we've, we've gotten that rhythm down. And we're, we're, we've been married for 31 years now, and we're in our 50s, and we're both, we just feel like, We've reached that stage in a relationship where we're an old, comfortable pair of shoes. We're the old farts now that, that like talk about the old days and talk about the kids today and, and how things, <laughs> how the world's changed, you know. So, no, it's uh, it's it's I, I 
I do love sharing life and sharing space with Mrs. Lori. She's, she's a, I can't imagine life without her. Mm. How did you, what was your first date? You said you met when you were at college. We did. Okay, this is crazy. Okay, and here's the crazy part. I just talked about how she's not enamored with the showbiz. We met when I went to see a production of Godspell. All right, it's a musical show, of course. Mm. A live stage production um, that was happening on campus. And uh, because I had a friend in the show, and I went to see that friend in that show, and while I was watching Godspell, I saw a blonde girl in the cast who was rather gorgeous and rather animated and rather funny. And I understood every expression she made made sense to me. And I really connected with her while watching this show that happened to be Mrs. Laurie. Mm. So, um, so after the show was over, I met the cast in the lobby and I saved her for last because I, I was nervous and jittery. And so, so talk about a table, a, tur- a, a turning of the tables. Yeah. That's how we met was she was on stage and I was in the audience. Mm. Yeah. Little did we know that, that life would become what it has where, you know, she's my number one cheerleader and I'm the one on stage now, you know, so. Mm. She's the Doug yeah. Jones mascot. Yes, yeah, she is indeed. Yes. <laughs> I remember um, when uh, when we did meet, uh, one of the things, one of the first lessons, if you like, that I remember taking away from you and from your career was this idea. And I'm pretty sure you imparted this wisdom onto me that um, luck is opportunity meeting preparation. Ooh, that's yeah. You remember that? Wow, that's a, I, I've said that quote many times over my life. There were people like, oh, you're so lucky. No, you know, okay, luck is when opportunity meets preparation, right? So if you if a door is open to you and you're not prepared and trained and ready for that opportunity, you will miss it, mm. right? Mm. Yeah, luck will well, luck will not be yours that day. <laughs> so. Um, so uh, when people think that, especially with showbiz careers, uh, you know, so many people people watch from the sidelines thinking, "Oh my gosh, you just lucked into that movie." Yeah, well, no, yeah, you might you might have had some talent, you might have had to work your ass off to get uh, to get that door open to you, and um, and if you don't have the goods to carry that job through, that will that it'll, it'll be your last, right? Mm. So. Uh, so you know, um, it, it takes a bit more than just oh, crazy luck. Yeah, <laughs> no. mm. right. But I think even in life, I mean, talking about this uh, meeting with Mrs. Laurie, you know, your one might say it was dumb luck that you happened to go to the show that night. But you know, right? No, right. I think I, I don't think there's anything such thing as as, uh, as coincidences or oh, you had a crazy little. Um, no, I felt I felt that was very much again going going back to you know. Uh, feeling that, that God is in control of my life and he, he does make, he does open those doors at the right time in the right place. Um, uh, at the, when I met Mrs. Lori, uh, where I was at relationship wise at the time, uh, since high school, since I was 16, I had been dating one girl after another. Uh, and, and as one, as one was, was fading and we were about to break up, uh, I would meet the next one. So I, I was kind of like a chain smoker. Right. <laughs> and, um, uh, we were one cigarette, let the, let the next one, you know? Mm. Uh, so it was like that and it, that carried over into college. And, um, it was my junior year, my third year of college, uh, when, <coughs> when I had, I had finally broken up with, with, with a girlfriend and had decided, okay, Doug, you are not dating anyone for the, until you're 30. We're, yes, you're done. You're done. Uh, 
because I, I think I, I, would, I had that personality type that was just I needed to be with someone to complete myself, you know. Mm. I, I needed to explore this Dougie thing, and, uh, and I needed to own my own space and, uh, and, and experience independence and what that felt like. And, and uh, so I had decide, was decided that you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't really need to date again uh, until I was about 30. That'd be fine. And here I was, you know, at 20 saying this, um, little did I know that three months later I would meet, uh, go to this, this show and meet Mrs. Laurie. But I think, I think that true love will find you when you are not looking for it. Um, mm. uh, I think again, I was, in, I was in the right place. I was, I was in a place where it's like, um, instead of like, I'm lonely, I must find someone, anyone with a pulse will do. When that's your attitude, you will find a, you're, you'll, you'll find the wrong person, and you'll you'll try to make a, you'll try to make a square peg fit into a round hole, and it's gotta work. It's just gotta work, and it won't. It and it and it won't. It'll be a disaster, right? Mm. Um, so so when you're not looking when you're not looking for uh, for anything specific, and just let life uh, you know bring what it will. Um, Boy, there's a surprise around every corner, and there's every day's Christmas. You know, every day's a new present to open with surprises and 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 gifts and delights. And uh, and my gift that day, February fourteenth of nineteen eighty, was uh, meeting Mrs. Valentine's Day. It was Valentine's Day. To make it even a sweeter, more sicky sweet story, yes. (laughs) Talk about giving honey instead of vinegar. You know what I'm talking about? I know what you're saying. I know, I know, and that's beautiful. So, what? Where did you take her on on the first date? Oh, okay. Well, uh, so here's the complicated part of this, right? Um, when we met, it, it was uh, there was a the building that we were in. Uh, there was a Valentine's Day dance downstairs in the basement of this building that was happening right after the show. So I asked her in the lobby when I'm meeting her, uh, so, hey, are you going to be uh, staying for the, the, the dance, you know, later on? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, no, uh, um, you know, my roommate and I, who's also in the show, uh, she and I are going to, you know, drop our stuff off at the house and then come back. And uh, yeah, 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 I'll be here. Okay, great. Yeah, okay, great. So we're at this dance then. And, uh, and when she entered the room, it was like, oh, there she is. <laughs> and so we, we ended up dancing the night away and being goofy on the dance floor. And, I, I, you know, again, she was, she was like a, a female version of me. We really, really clicked and got along so well. And uh, at one point in the evening, she got somber and got, grew quiet and kind of like uh, excused herself and walked out of the room. Well, I followed and I and I caught her at the doorway uh, to to the hall, to the hallway, and I said, uh, 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 "Is everything okay? You seem a bit all of a sudden down." And, and I said, "I have big ears. I'm a good listener." Okay, so we, I walk out into the hallway with her, and uh, no, it couldn't be more romantic. I, you know, the hallway's kind of dark, and the, only the exit sign is lighting the 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 the, 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 the archways, bowl, flicking in the corridor. <laughs> Totally, totally, totally. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's a it's a romance novel moment, and we end up sitting on the floor in the hallway on a tile floor out of this industrial building, you know, and um, and she says, "Okay, the truth is, I'm engaged to another fellow, and I'm due to be married in June, right? Only months away, 
And she said, it's guys like you who make me wondering, wonder if I'm doing the right thing. Mm. Okay. Okay. Now, all of a sudden, I went from, you know, being this guy who's interested in this girl to being a homewrecker, right? Mm. <laughs> so I was like, You're, okay. So turns out she was engaged to a fellow who was in the Navy on a submarine. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> he's on a submarine. So you can't even call him, right? No. And. And she she got engaged. No, she, uh, she was engaged. She was a freshman, uh, so she it was her first year of, of university. It was my third year. She had come from a small town, and she uh, had met this guy in her local theater group. And so, you know, a, as a high school senior, uh, and she's meeting this guy who's a couple years older than her, and he's like, you know, in the military, and like, oh, so there was a, a romance to that on a small town scale where she, you know, he went away and like, and so they got engaged before he went enlisted or went away to, to war. Right. So it was just like, you know, very Norman Rockwell painting ish to her, you mm. know, uh, as this impressionable young girl. So, um, so then she leaves her small town and goes to this big university and finds out, Oh, there's a lot of life outside that small town. And there's a lot of other guys that have attributes and things and then she's reviewing this guy and thinking to herself huh maybe i jumped the gun on this one (laughs) on this engagement proposal Mm. so she had already been having those thoughts apparently and then me coming along at the at the right time or the wrong time i don't know uh uh made her say this thing that she just said to me i'm engaged to be married um this summer in june and it's guys like you who make me wonder if i'm doing the right thing so uh, she'd already been thinking about this, and so she ended up calling her mother the next day and saying, let's postpone wedding plans for now. I have to get a hold of Keith, uh, uh, the fellow. Uh, and so she ended up having – she sent a radiogram to him. Oh, bless his heart. Mm. If you're, can you imagine being in the Navy in a submarine? You can't communicate with anybody. You're miles beneath the surface of the water, and all you can get is like messages. And – and this one comes saying, uh, you know, um, Keith, stop. Uh, 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 we need to talk. Stop. Uh, <laughs> postponing wedding plans for now. Stop. Please call me when you surface. Stop. Mm, that's never okay. a good radiogram to get. No, no. How could it be? Uh, so anyway, uh, so when he surfaced, uh, he called her from a payphone. This is back before we had cell phones. And... Um, Apparently it was a very short conversation and, um, uh, and, uh, but it was one of those things where, uh, you know, he was young too at the time and, and, um, and, and it was a very quick goodbye that they had. Uh, uh, so the fact that it was able to end so quickly over the phone was indicative to Mrs. Laurie that, oh, well then that, that if, if neither of if neither of them were worth fighting for, then they might not have had the real thing. Mm. But that's 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 what they both could kind of concluded, right? Mm. So uh, so she called me up after that in my dorm room and said, "Well, it looks like I'm all yours now." So <laughs> so uh, so that was when I that was when we went out that night and I kissed her for the first time. Uh, uh, but I waited because I was I did I I wanted to act as a gentleman throughout mm. this process. I did not. I had no opinions about this other fellow. I had no right to have an opinion about him. I didn't know him. I didn't know their relationship. That was her business and hers alone. And so, and I told her so. I told her, you know, you you work out what you have to work out. And if that, if you talk to him on the phone when he surfaces and your heart goes pitter patter and you're feeling things for him, 
explore that, go with that. I want, I do not want to be uh, a distraction from your real feelings. Mm. So anyway, so she'll tell you now that that, that comment to her made her fall in love with me even more. It's like, <laughs> Oh, he's so giving, he's so selfless, <laughs> whatever. But yeah. So That's but truth be told, but you, there was no other answer. It had to be that way. Mm. So, uh, so bless her heart. She, um, you know, uh, so I, I, I waited to have that first kiss, uh, until after she, you know, ha- was conclusively done with this fellow. Mm. So, yeah, but so there, there was know, love. That's the, exactly. That's what we were talking about before the, the love state, this being in service of your heart in that scenario is exactly mm-hmm. what you did. Whereas the fear state would be, I'm going to have an opinion I'm going to push you to do what I want because I'm scared that you might not act in that way. Yes. You know, it's totally in service of ego, I'm saying before. Right, exactly. And it's really not about loving the other person for whatever choices they make. Right, 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 exactly. Mm. Exactly. And you'll see one relationship after another where, you know, breakups can be so ugly and, uh, you know, especially guys with their egos. Men have, have... have like a, uh, they're, they're, they can be combative, you mm, know. The testosterone fueled rage. Yeah, right, 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 right. So, so when you've got like a, uh, the new guy who's defensive of the girl and and wants to like you know badmouth the old guy, uh, you know, uh, when he doesn't even know the old guy at all, but he's he's just heard what she's said about him, and maybe it's not all good, and so he's like, yeah, he gets defensive for her sake, and then, but you know, oh, that's. That's all. You're right. That's uh, that is a completely fear-based scenario. Mm. If it's if it's love-based, then, then um, you know let everybody have their feelings, and, and and if and if those feelings aren't 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 in your direction, and they're and you're not the one being loved, then back off like a gentleman and and let 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 love happen where it will. But it's if it's not yours, it's not yours. You know. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that? Um, I think I know the answer to this. Do you, but do you think that um, that's what the meaning of why we're here is, is to return to this state of love and to so that we can all kind of have this experience of being loving energy, I suppose? Uh, sure. Sure. I think, oh, gosh, the, the, the whole why are we here questions, that's, a, that's multifaceted and multilayered, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah. Um, that, that is absolutely one reason, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, I also think you know, again and from from a christian perspective perspective and and um starting off with my belief that there is a god who created the 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 heavens and the earth um and he created the human race to to be his companions to be to to find those that will love him back right mm. now, he created he created all of us with with much love in his heart for each and every one of us uh which, us will love him back, uh, is I think was was the is the quest you know. Sorry, and, could you and, say that uh, again? You just um, sky. Oh out. yeah, so <laughs> uh, he, I believe that, that that God created us uh, uh, to be his companions and 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 to find out which ones of us will love him back. He loves all of us equally, and 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 so so which of us will love him back and and will uh, uh, want to be with him for eternity? Uh, I, I think that's another why are we here question for me anyway i i certainly believe that that um that we're we're here to uh, to go through this earthly life um with all of its all of its temptations and tests 
and uh, and character growth and all that we can learn from this this place. But I, I do believe that we're we're spiritual beings having a physical experience. <laughs> I really believe that. That was exactly the quote that was playing in my head right then that I was yeah. going to say. Oh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I think there's yeah in the in the the bigger picture, there's so much more than this experience we're having now. This lasts you know seventy eighty years maybe right, mm. and uh, and uh, and then we. Um, level up then, then there's more right there, there's 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 a lot more coming and mm-hmm. um, and I I want to do things right here and make the right choices here so that I can have that eternal afterlife with uh, with the God who made me and I'll tell you this my my mother my mother uh, uh, she passed away two years ago at age 84 and uh, the most Christian woman I've ever known in my life the most Christ-like human being I've ever known is, is my mother um, oh gosh, here I go. You know, how are you doing this to me? Stop it. Okay. So <clears throat> I, when she was, um, she had lived a very long and healthy and full, rich, rich life, um, traveled the world and, and had, and spent her life in service to others. She was a very much a service minded person. Um, and, uh, um, sharing God's love with other human beings was her first and foremost purpose and her, and her, her uh, her reason to wake up that day was to share God's love with other people, mm. what, and whatever form that came in that day, whether it was leading a Bible study or whether it was taking food to the homeless or whether it was visiting people in nursing homes. I mean, my mother was extremely active in all fronts, right? So she, uh, when given the word that she had an incurable uh, cancer, inoperable, and that she had about three months to live, it was already in stage four by the time she found out, I was with her that day, and um, which was rare, by the way. Again, another godly timed thing that I happened to be home in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, I had planned a five-day visit with my to be with my mom, which I rarely get that much time with her. So, uh, so I was really excited to be home for five days. Well, the day that I arrived was the day she was admitted to the hospital with jaundice. She had turned yellow. And it was because of of this little problem that when the test came back, it's like, oh, Mrs., uh, you know, <laughs> you have you have uh, you know an inoperable cancer, uh, and so she was given a, a a prognosis of about three months to live. Well, of course, it's like, okay, now mom mom was eighty four, and when your parents reach a certain age, you do start thinking we're not going to have them forever, and you do start preparing yourself for the inevitable. It's a part of life, you know. Um, mm. Leaving our earthly body is just a part of life. It's going to be, a, it's a part of the deal, unfortunately. Mm. Um, but but you never want to believe that it's going to happen to anyone you love, you know. Uh, so here I am with my mom, and and she held my hand and she said to me, you know, and I, I I was a mess. I was like, you know, I was tearing up and I was thinking, okay, well here's here's the news I didn't want to ever hear, but it's going to happen. Okay, I I get it now. And mom held my hand and she said. Honey, I have had a really good life. I mean, she wasn't shedding a tear. She she heard the news and was like, "No, okay." She, that was her answer to the doctor. Was, "Oh, okay." <laughs> right. I'm thinking, how how can you be so casual about this? And she said, "It's because I have had such a rich, full life." And she had she had had a life that anybody would pay money for. Hmm. She had been married married three times, never divorced. Right. She had she was widowed twice, and, and her third husband she left behind. Hmm. And she'd had four boys and no jail time. I think she did very well, right? <laughs> right? So, um, so 
you know, and again, she had traveled the world and and uh, and had uh, just so much life experience and had really set out what she'd planned to do. Her bucket list was all checked off, you know. Mm. Um, and so she said to me in that moment, she said, I'm looking very forward to meeting this Jesus I've been singing about in church for 84 years. Mm. I'm very much looking forward to seeing your father again. I'm very much forward to seeing your, your first stepfather again. I'm very much looking forward to seeing my father and my mother again, my brothers and sisters, who she had outlived her entire immediate family. She was the last one to go. And so this, this happy reunion that she was looking forward to of all of her loved ones who had gone on before her and meeting and spending the rest of her eternity with the God who made her. This is, this is someone coming to the end of their life with their hands in the air going, yeah, you know, like hitting mm. the finish line with, vic- with, with victory as opposed to clinging to this earthly life as, as, as though it's the last thing and, and I don't want to die, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. Uh, she did not have that fearful attitude. It was more of a glorious, victorious love of the life that she'd had and a love for what was yet to come. Mm. Oh, it, I'll tell you a little, Al. That's when it's my time. Oh, when it's my time to go, this is the grace and the comfort and the ease with which I want to slip out of this world. Absolutely. Mm. The, the way she did it was, was, was the template of how it should be done. Mm. Well, it's the, I think it's a, a, a Buddhist uh, idea that it's the resistance that's, that creates suffering. I believe. Oh, I believe so. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. There was no resistance on her part whatsoever. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't sound like it. Yeah. She was <laughs> all in. Yeah, she was indeed. Mm. Um, oh, there are so many, so many things I I want to uh, just talk to you about, but I'm very conscious of the fact that we've we're uh, running out of time. Um, yeah, yeah, we don't want to bore your listeners to tears with more Dougie time. Oh, come on, now. how much how much Dougie can they take? Hey, you know the, the one with Liam went for two hours, I think. So, ah, well, you you uh, well, you and Liam had had history too. You had a lot to talk about. That's true. Um, I was just thinking. Do you remember when I came to your house and I actually met Mrs. Laurie? I showed you that short film of the Cinema Rushes. Yes, you remember that? Yes. Liam was I the do, main I actor do. in that. Oh, oh, duh! Of course, right? <laughs> oh my gosh! How funny! Yeah. yeah. All right, That's all right. Well, look little... at you. I'm, well, I, I am so proud of you, by the way, you, uh, you know, seeing you go, grow from a 15 year old high school child, mm. um, uh, into a very self-contained, uh, independent, uh, oriented seeker of, <laughs> um, and, and, and just the way you've handled this podcast, even, you know, um, I do a lot of podcasts and I, and I do a lot of interviews and people usually want to rehash your history and your, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the bullet points that, that, the, that, uh, that fans want to know the most or you know, your showbiz highlights, of course, mm-hmm. but, uh, just the, the, the depth that you go into with, uh, with life and love and relationships and, and a greater purpose and all that. This is, this has been a lovely, lovely time to talk. Thank you so much for oh, this. this. My pleasure. Been, uh, uh, you're absolutely a cut above the, the average podcast. Oh, thanks, Doug. That's, uh, that means a lot. Um, and but I mean, I, I sincerely believe that all of that stuff that un- is what underpins everything. And Doesn't you know, it? We, we, yeah. we, we talk about this idea of yours that luck is preparation meeting or opportunity meeting preparation. But all this stuff about that we've just been talking about about preparing even for, for dying. 
that's that's mm-hmm. what it's the same theory it's not just applicable in a career sense or in a relationship sense it's applicable in the basest deepest part of life it's yeah. where you know you're it, it's it's about i i am constantly ready so that i know that i have given all that i can so that i have mm-hmm. loved as much as i can or whatever that may be for anyone so right. whilst i've done all this preparation and i've got points to talk with you about you know being mac tonight in, in early <laughs> on in your career and, and hocus pocus and buffy and all this amazing yeah. stuff that is very exciting that's just the kind of top level of it and i'm much more yeah. interested in the bottom level right 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 exactly the, the basis from which it all, all the other grows yes mm. I, I would agree with you the little seedlings yeah absolutely um uh, well, thank you so much, Doug, for doing this podcast. I have one, actually, no, there's two standard questions that I, that I have to ask you. Um, having yes. said all that, there are two bullet points that I like to, um, to cover off with everyone. Okay. Um, okay. The first one is, do you remember the first time that you entertained anyone, be it family or friends or anything? And I like to recall that as a kid, I used, Nick and I used to put on shows with all our cousins for our uncles and aunties and... I would, we would write them together and I would often direct them and we would all act in them. And I remember feeling this kind of energy around doing that that, may, that, that, I, that I sincerely believe has thrust me forward with this career and lifestyle choice. Yes, uh, y- yes. And I think it is, it is uh, it's one thing to have like dreams of your own and like, and, and, like goals and, and like, oh, I, one day I just want to be a singer or whatever, right? Mm. Uh, and yet, if people around you are saying, mm, really a singer, really? Uh, <laughs> uh, or, or if they're saying, oh my gosh, you sing like an angel. Yes, pursue that. If you hear that again and again and again from different people, then you, you know you're barking up the right tree, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so as an actor, I, did, I indeed wanted to be an actor since I was uh, watching TV as a kid. And uh, my, my early performances would have been... Now, being remember, I'm the youngest of four boys, which means that that the little brother was never to be heard from. Anything I said was stupid and ridiculous, and just shut up, Dougie. Right? <laughs> so, right. So that was a lot to combat, and that, and mm-hmm. so if I wanted to perform and entertain, I had to find a way to do that where they would I could get past the shut up Dougie phase. Right. Mm-hmm. So what seemed to work in the Jones household was was mocking other members of the family and mimicking them. Right. So uh, I was able uh, to, and I'm not an impressionist. I don't do I don't do celebrity impressions or anything like that now at all, except for Guillermo del Toro. Except for Guillermo del Toro, <laughs> which I'll talk like him all day if I can. Doug um, Jones. Doug. Cajones. Uh, yeah, that's what he called Cajones because Doug Jones. You know, in in the, in the Spanish language, Jones the J sound is like Cajones. <laughs> so he calls me. So he he calls me Cajones. Doug Plus, Cajones. Sorry. Yeah, right, right. Which is a, it would say, you know, that's a, mm, uh, cojones, it, it's a, you know, it's another word for, for testicles. Uh, <laughs> right. So, you know, it, it's not an endearing nickname, really, mm. unless Guillermo del Toro is the one saying it, which he can make, he can make the F word sound endearing. Mm. Uh, but anyhow, uh, but it, in, in the Jones household, uh, I would mimic my father. Uh, and my brother Tommy and uh, my brother Richie. I had, uh, and they they became sort of like caricatures of 
of them that that entertained the rest of the family. So when you when I could play family members against each other, then it's like, okay, I got an audience now. Yeah, so it's working, right? Got the puppets so that, dancing. That, right, right. So, <laughs> right. so, so that was my early days, and then uh, so then it was uh, at my grade schools when I was in the eighth grade. Um, I, do, I remember specifically. Uh, getting on stage to do a Christmas presentation or something for the first time and hearing an audience laugh at something I did or say, aw, at something I did was just like that fed the beast. Mm-hmm. Okay. That fed the monster that wanted to perform. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do remember the eighth grade being on that little stage in, in Christ the King Catholic uh, grade school in Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, and leaving the stage, you know, feeling like, oh, my feeling energized and like, I got to do that again. That was great. You know, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I remember that feeling as well, um, being on stage at school and just having that that feedback, you know, when um, when you would know that the audience was with you and that they were really they were feeding off your energy. And then you and it just became this really symbiotic thing, obviously, as a. 12 or 15 year old I'm not thinking that and I probably don't know what the word symbiotic means but <laughs> <laughs> just uh-huh. having, having that experience um, and it's it's you know again a recurring theme through all of this is you know and I think those are the formative years those are the foundation years where you're really understanding on a um, on a primitive level what it is that makes you uh move forward, take steps forward, enjoy life and, and puts you in a state where you, where you're wanting to give love to whatever. Um, these, obviously these are not the things that you're articulating in at that time, but that's what you're feeling. Um, I, I, I did want to ask you as a kind of a silly aside, what it was like being on, um, the Al Yankovic show. Cause you did a, you did a oh. little bit on that in the, oh my God. in the eighties. Yeah, I did. I did. It was, uh, golly, when was that? I, uh, huh. Where, did you see that in the 80s or was it in, uh, been in the early, uh, 90, uh, mid-90s, I think. Yeah, mid-90s, yeah. sorry. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, I did five. He had a Saturday morning kids show. Mm. Uh, the Weird Al show, it was called. And it was just silly, zany, you know, Weird Al at, at, his, at his loudest. Mm. Um, and uh, so I ended up doing five episodes it only—I think it only lasted one season, but I did five episodes uh, in, a, in, a, in a recurring bit that he had, where he went to a TV. He, he's like, oh, "I don't know what, what do you think we should do now." I know, let's watch TV. Then he get out this humongous remote control and turn on this big TV set, <laughs> and then and then channel surf basically through the channels. Hmm. And he would always come upon this one channel that was the fitness show, and uh, and it was of course it was Weird Al. On that, him watching himself on TV, he was, he was in a blonde wig as the fitness instructor, and I was one, and there was a, a, a young lady and mm-hmm. me that were his two sidekicks, also wearing spandex, like, like you know, 90s uh, workout wear. Mm. Oh, it was just hor- horrible. <laughs> like, you know, a little a tight tank top with little biking shorts, sort of like the spandexies. Oh, oh, God. And, you know, my skinny ass in spandex is just not something that should be on TV. Mm. But... It was, and uh, and so we did these funny bits where you know uh, we we would contort and be and uh, do exercises that no human being could ever ever do, and uh, yeah, so they were just zany zany physical bits, and um, had a ball doing it. 
Weird Al, like many comedians, I will tell you, uh, his persona is so witty and so funny and so out there and so expressive. But when he's off camera and you're just being sociable on the side, he's quiet, he's reserved, he's almost boring. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I found that to be like, huh, I, I didn't expect that. Because, you know, you, you know someone's persona, uh, how you've been a, from being a fan of theirs and watching their work. It's like, oh, I'll bet he's a riot to live with. <laughs> and then, then you meet him in person and it's like, wow, wow, he's so quiet. And it's so funny that uh, uh, because... I tend to be rather loud and extroverted in public, but I really am more of an introvert myself. And I understand, I understand the Weird Al thing, you know. Mm. Uh, Mrs. Laurie gets asked all the time, oh my gosh, I'll bet Doug is just a riot to live with every day. And she will tell them, oh no, no, at home he's almost comatose, right? Mm. <laughs> he's like, it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to get, it's just to snap her fingers in front of my forehead to get a reaction out of me. Um, so I, I find my I, I like to find my happy my my happy place is a quiet one. It really mm. is. And I think Weird Al is very much the same way. Yeah. And a mm. lot of comedians are a lot of comedians who, who are zany and, and out there and doing armpit farts in public. Uh, their quiet time is is can be very reserved. Yeah. Mm. And I think someone like Weird Al, the reason I brought him up is because despite his kind of polarizing um, <laughs> uh, uh, creative output. He mm-hmm. is one of the most sustained performers of our generation. I mean, he's still he, mm-hmm. he is still as big today as he was 10, 20, yeah. 30 years ago. And it's right. quite remarkable that he just found this niche, similar to you, I suppose, where he was the not the only one doing it, but he he was the right shape of round for the right shape of hole that was right. available yeah. for that moment. Yeah. And the amount yeah, yeah. of hard work and dedication that goes into being the guy to sustain that niche mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. is, you know, certainly not something to be underestimated, I think. Right, right. Yeah, he, he's he been a weird owl all this time. He never morphed mm. or, or had to, like, uh, he didn't have to um, evolve to become something else. He didn't have to do the Madonna thing where she, you know, she's changing her style every other year to meet the times. He's been weird out all this time, and that, mm. that is remarkable that 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 uh, that the public has still let him be that, and 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 reveres him for that. That's, that's great, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah. What a, what an unusual aside we just went on then. Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the last question that I've finished the show with all the time, and it feels somewhat redundant asking you this, um, but I'm gonna anyway. Okay. What makes you silly? <laughs> what makes me silly? Uh, uh, what, okay, well, that, that's that could be like also like what what makes me act silly, or what make or what or what makes me or what what do I react to in a silly way? Uh, okay, uh, <laughs> it's a grammatically okay, ambiguous go. question. It really is it's, uh, on, on purpose, huh? A little Al. Um, what makes me silly? Okay. I think it's a two. Okay, I'm going to give you. Uh, uh, I'm going to give you a two a two part answer for this. Okay, because there's because I'm going to take this two different ways. What makes me a silly person? Uh, it was my early need for acceptance, and uh, and being a tall, skinny, goofy kid in the Midwest 
uh, of the United States where normal is only a very small sliver that you have. And if you're anything outside of that small sliver of normal, you will be made fun of. Mm. So I was being a tall, lanky, goofy kid who didn't, it was gangly and couldn't walk a straight line. Uh, it was extremely, uh, I was, I was, I was an easy target to be made fun of. So I developed a sense of humor and I became a silly person, uh, as a defense mechanism so that I could control why they were laughing at me. Mm. Right. Uh, that's that's one answer to why what makes me silly. It would be the early childhood. Mm. The other answer would be what makes me like silly is southern gospel music. <laughs> that will make me silly. Yes. Yeah. Give give me a big busted uh, black lady in a choir robe singing her guts out, and I am the silliest person in the room. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. What 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 happens when you when you get that scenario? Oh, well, I start. I put my hand in the air, and I'm having some church. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll make, I'll make, I'll make noise and say, "Get it, yeah." <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Doug, for doing this. It means uh, means a lot to me. Oh, it means a lot to me too that you would find me a worthy subject of of your show. Thank you, precious. Thanks, man, and thank you for all of your support over the last sixteen years now. <laughs> Crazy. I know it ain't right. It ain't right. Oh my goodness, you. Uh. You're, you're still 15 years old. This can't be happening. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. I know. All right, Precious. Big love for you, little Al. Big love to you as well, big man. I'll see you okay. soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. I don't like to play favorites uh, when it comes to coming up next guests. Um, so I'll just say that that was my absolute favorite episode that I got to release this week. Um what a privilege and a joy it is to bring uh, to bring Doug Jones and some pretty amazing conversation to your ears. Thank you so much to uh, to my old friend Dougie um, for always supporting me and for supporting my endeavors and for being a guest on this podcast. And how amazing that we can just log into Skype, have a chat, make a show, and put it out into the world. It's pretty mind blowing. I'd love to know what you think of, uh, of the show to date, friends. You can jump on iTunes, download any of the episodes, and uh, yeah, leave me, l- let me know what you're thinking, what you're liking, what you're not liking, what's working, what's not working, what you'd like to hear more of, what you'd like to hear less of. We are coming up to a pretty awesome milestone. We're not far off being on the iTunes waves for six months. So thank you all for coming back week after week and for listening. Coming up next week, friends going to step back into the world of music bringing you an artist he is a pretty phenomenal singer songwriter i would highly recommend if you're not familiar with his music jumping online and entering his name into google check out a song called summer Uh, if you're not hooked immediately come back next week you'll hear him doing an acoustic performance at the end of our interview coming up next hayden kalnan have an awesome week friends and I'll speak to you next Tuesday.